we have a software-defined jet, okay, as opposed to a hardware-defined jet. Most F-35 pilots haven't been born yet. There are kids and our grandkids, and, and they will show up with a totally different idea than we had. And they will say, no, 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 here's a better way to employ with this airplane. Let's change the software. Now, the hardware is great, but let's go exploit some features in there we hadn't thought of before. April of 1953 was the last time any American soldier was attacked by an enemy air, uh, aircraft. So what I want is every time an aircraft noise, jet noise, comes overhead, nobody has to look up and wonder if it's red or blue. They know it's the U.S. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and I have two guests joining me for this episode, retired Air Force Major General Bob Delaney and Dr. Mike Scaff. We're going to talk about the F-35. The F-35 is the fifth generation fighter jet the U.S. military is counting on to meet the needs of the future battle space. It's also an extraordinarily expensive platform and the subject of more than a little controversy. Both of my guests are former Air Force fighter pilots. General Delaney is also a representative of the F-35's manufacturer, Lockheed Martin, where Dr. Scaff is an engineer who was responsible for designing the new fighter's cockpit. I had a lot of questions for both of them, and during the episode they discuss everything from the fundamental transformation the F-35 represents over earlier generation fighters to how it will perform as a close air support asset for ground forces. A couple notes before we get started. First, if you're not yet doing so, you can follow MWI on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It is the best way to stay up to date on the new articles, podcast episodes, and research that we're releasing daily. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, let's get to the conversation. Uh, I want to welcome retired Major General Bob Delaney, U.S. Air Force, and Dr. Mike Scaff uh, to the MWI podcast. If we can first just briefly, um, uh, General Delaney, if you can give us a little bit about your background. I joined the Air Force in 73, uh, the time the... Uh, Vietnam War was winding down. That was the reason I went to ROTC is the way I got my commission. But I did go to uh, pilot training in 73, got the F-4 as my first fighter assignment. I uh, spent uh, my first five years flying F-4s and then I was one of the first ones that transitioned into the F-16. So I got to watch that transition from third generation to fourth generation. And to be honest with you, it's a little bit of deja vu going on for me right now as I watch people transition from fourth to fifth gen. Same discussions, but that's my background. 33 years in the Air Force flying fighters, 10 years with Lockheed Martin uh, promoting the uh, F-35. Okay, thank you. And Dr. Scaff? Please call me Mike. Mike. I enlisted in the Air Force in 76, and then during that enlistment, got an appointment at the Air Force Academy and flew F-16s the entire time that I was in and then left and worked for General Dynamics and then Lockheed Martin and was fortunate enough to get to design the cockpit on the F-35. Okay, well, I'm glad you brought up the F-35 because that's what we want to talk about today. Um, I want to start with kind of just big picture. Um, you both flew fourth generation jets. Um, General Delaney, you also flew a third generation jet. How does can you kind of paint a picture of the evolutionary trajectory of the F-35 and, and, and what makes it kind of special? You want to take it on? Sure. 
It, there's a big difference. Of course, third gen was the F-4, the first multi-role fighters. The F-4 did air-to-air -air and, and air-to-ground extremely well in Vietnam. But then the fourth gen, like F-15s, F-16s, F-18s, Griffins and Rafals, the Sus and the MiGs, multi-role fighters, but they're incorporated uh, numerous sensors that we saw, state-of-the-art sensors back at that time. But the fifth gen, the trajectory is exponential from fourth to fifth. Uh, there was a breakthrough, primarily in stealth and net-enabled operations, advanced sensor fusion, extreme agility, and logistics. And so those are the five discriminators of a fifth gen airplane. Only F-22 and F-35 are deemed fifth gen right now in the world. Uh, you brought up the F-22 and I think from, you know, we're here at West Point, so we have kind of a ground perspective. Um, we see this stuff, but we don't necessarily always um, understand it on a kind of a nuanced level. Um, can you can you kind of position the F-22 and F-35 next to each other in the future of the, of the force? They are very complimentary. The, the F-22 was designed and built it became IOC, Initial Operational Capability, combat ready over 10 years ago. What's happened to our cell phones in the last 10 years? That's what's happened to technology. The F-22 has 2.2 million lines of code of processing power. Uh, that's a lot, because my F-16 had a million lines of code, so it had twice as much processing power for its computers. This airplane, the F-35, has over 8.6 million lines of code. We're doing things now with the F-35 that we've never done with a fighter. When I went from the F-4 to the F-16, I did the same missions I've always done in a multi-role fighter. I just did them better. This aircraft is allowing me to do missions I've never done in a fighter. Uh, think about some of the jamming or some of the ECM or the um, ISR, uh, Intelligence Surveillance Reconnaissance. I just have a lot of information and I'll tell you, we're just now beginning that journey with the uh, airmen that are flying it. They're going to find ways to use this airplane that we never envisioned because of its capabilities. But you want to add to that? That's exactly right. And, and General Delaney brings up the eight point, some, so many lines of code. Uh, it, it means that we have a software-defined jet as opposed to a hardware-defined jet. In the third generation and somewhat in the fourth gen, you had to replace computers and hardware. Not so now, we can just change software, very much like your computer at home, get update after update and make the airplane even more lethal and more survivable. I think that's what, when Tesla first started fielding self-driving cars, they did it with a software update push. Right. So um, is that then what you talked, you, you, you mentioned kind of technological um, growth and you know, Moore's law with, with um, computer processing speeds and powers you know, doubling every 18 months. Is that by transitioning from a hardware kind of centric uh, model to a software centric model, is that how you stay ahead of that, of that uh, growth curve? That is exactly right. So it allows us to do updates in between the hardware updates that are more difficult and more expensive. And it's not just software. The engineers back home would slap us if we said that because software is hard to do and it's expensive, but it is less so than changing hardware. Okay. Um, what, what, in terms of if you go back to kind of the early, uh, the, the genesis of the idea for the F-35, uh, what was the vision of the future battle space that the F-35 is going to have to be able to survive and win in? That's all you, Mike. It was tough. We realized about 20 years ago that everything was changing. And we saw that, that cyber and software, the enemy had that, and they could make great changes in software as well. And we needed a revolution. We needed something to keep up and could outpace that. Of course, in the Air Force, we like to talk about asymmetric warfare. 
We want to go to the air battle and totally dominate and destroy and then get back home again. We want to stay well ahead of the enemy to make sure that nobody on the ground, the soldiers in particular, nobody's been hurt since Korea. We're going to keep it that way. If we, if we look at uh, the, the future battle space, which the Army and, and to, to a considerable extent the Marines especially have been kind of championing this vision of a multi-domain battle, how does the F-35 play into that? Again, the sensors will allow us to, to integrate in all that, and, and, and we talk about net-enabled operations, that's where we can share what we have, and we are a collector of information. So if we can get it to the right command centers, the right airmen, the right infantry, if we can get that information, that's important, because information is key. Uh, situational awareness is what we call it in the, in the air. You know, if we know what's going on, what the battle space is, we can, we can do better. Uh, we have more capability now to understand what's going on in the battle space than we've ever done. But here's the other thing that I'd like to make a uh, comment about. All the things we, we heard in the uh, few days we've been here has been about the Army, and that has been a wonderful education for, for Mike and I, and we are just, we understand our heritage. You know, we came from the Army Air Corps. Uh, we are all about that heritage and what, what we've done. Mike mentioned it, and I'll mention it again because I think it's worth mentioning. April of 1953 was the last time any American soldier was attacked by an enemy air, uh, aircraft. So what I want is every time an aircraft noise, jet noise, comes overhead, nobody has to look up and wonder if it's red or blue. They know it's the U.S. Uh, that is not an easy task, but air superiority is what we're going to ensure with this aircraft. But back to what you're saying is we can also in integrate what we are doing with our sensors to up everybody's game. Uh, I'll give you an example, and I think you can extrapolate this to the ground forces or to naval forces, but flying with a fourth-gen airplane with a fifth-gen airplane, that fourth-gen airplane's capability has just been increased because of what he's going to gain from the fifth-gen. And I have personal experience with that. but. I have watched what happens when you fly with a fifth-gen airplane. Your situational awareness, your combat capability, your survivability, and not only that, but your lethality is increased because of that fifth-gen capability. So that you're going to see that, and, and again, I think we're at the very beginning of how to use these aircraft in this very dynamic situation. We're not talking about uh, over Afghanistan. We're talking about dynamic, contested airspace. This airplane is going to prove its value, just like the F-22 is doing in Syria today when they moved in those uh, surface-to-air missiles that nobody else can operate in except the F-22. You know what, John, you mentioned the Marines and the multi-domain warfare. God bless the Marines. If it weren't for them, I don't think we'd have an F-35. The Commandant pushed and pushed and pushed and kept the program alive, and now we're all the benefactors as, as taxpayers with an airplane that's for the Navy and the Marines and the Air Force. And the, the interesting part about the Marines becoming the first uh, service to go IOC, Initial Operational Capability. They went combat ready in 2015. Mm -hmm. And the only reason they have air, and they'll look you in the eye and tell you, the only reason we have air power is to protect that Marine on the ground. So they do what everybody wants us to do, is take care of the guys on the ground. I mean, that's our number one mission. Uh, both Mike and I are airmen. We were raised uh, on that philosophy, walking out the door. We knew we were there for the uh, for the folks on the ground, because if we, we're not there for them, nobody else is. So we really believe that and grew up on it. But watching the Marines do it, it's really wonderful to watch them pull the program along. And now the Air Force last year went 
initial operational capability, IOC. So they're combat ready, and as a matter of fact, uh, I think it's publicly released now, they're going to take their first deployment over to uh, the, the uh, Pacific Theater uh, real soon, next month. So, so we're going to see airplanes deployed, F-35s deployed by the Air Force uh, to the uh, Pacific. Well, uh, you mentioned the you mentioned the Marines as sort of um, you know often I think when you talk about the, the different domains um, there's a disconnect. The Marines are one of more I guess the service that sort of um, has a foot in, in each specifically from a from a land forces perspective um, their priority and and again admittedly it's a parochial one is close air support and that's been I think a big part of the debate within army circles certainly about the F-35 you know looking in from the outside kind of is how is this going to change close air support can can either you speak to that I think we can both speak to that I'll give you my personal experience first I'll go with the Marines like you said their whole mission is close air support and nobody questions their selection of the F-35 nobody but when the Air Force chose the F-35 then all of a sudden the question became uh, public how's this airplane do compared to name the, air, the platform. I think most senior officers, and again, I don't want to put words in their mouths, but the ones I personally have talked to, most senior army officers are agnostic on the platform as long as the fires go out when they call for it. Uh, they want speed and they want accuracy. They want the fire to go out today when they call for it, like now, and they don't want their troops hurt. Nothing does that better than the F-35. Speed and lethality, will, will, it comes to the game. We've done um, uh, red games or, or gaming scenarios where we put F-35s, F-16s, and A-10s in, in combat air patrol caps, and we have four or five fires break out around the uh, theater. F-35 can put them out before the F-16 can get to the third one before the A-10 even arrives at the first one. Uh, so that is what most senior Army officers that I've talked to want. They want the fires out when they've asked for it. What have you got? That's exactly right. In fact, back home one time, we had a general Army officer, a great warrior. But he says, Mike, he says, how slow can you fly? I said, oh, general, his slow is not good. But let me tell you what I can do. From brake release to 30,000 feet, Mach 1.2 in three minutes. And I can cruise from, say, Fort Worth to Oklahoma City in 15 to 20 minutes. I can pull back to Max Endure and work with your JTAC for the next hour. And we'll drop bombs on the enemy exchange, digital nine lines and imagery, and we'll take out what's going on down there. And you know, the A-10, great airplane if there's no threat, but it's slow and it can't get to your fight as quickly as you need. And so we want to be there fast, accurate, put those fires out as quickly as we can for you. And the accuracy part comes even before I have brake release on the ground. On the ground, I'm receiving nine lines. I can get information of what's going on in the battle space. And once I get there, I can talk to the JTACs or whoever. We can share information, pictures. Uh, we can do this very quickly and very accurate. I'm working the mission 200 miles out, you know, as I'm coming in. Uh, and, oh, by the way, that 200 miles is going to go by pretty fast at the speeds that I can fly it with a combat load. Uh, it's, uh, it changes the way we think about close air support, but again, the, the mission of close air support hasn't changed. Put that fire out when we ask for it now, and don't hurt us. Nothing does it better than the F-35. I think when, you, when we're talking about shifting from air to ground to air to air, it's been a long time since we've had 
significant air-to-air -air combat, I don't think anybody expects that trend to hold. Um, so how would you compare, uh, how can, can, you, can you kind of place this in the context of what, say, some of our near-peer adversaries are fielding or are, coming up, are preparing to field? I will tell you that they are chasing us again, which is a good feeling. Uh, we've, we've moved the bar again. When we moved the bar from uh, F-4s to uh, fourth generation fighters, we had an advantage. And I have personally watched this advantage sh get shaved off to where now there is near peers out there. So our fourth generation fighters are on a par with their fourth generation fighters. Here's what that means. As an airman, I go out and it's the streets of Dodge. I can see you about the same time you see me. I can shoot you about the same time you shoot me. So what does it come down to? The best draw? I mean, we're talking even uh, odds. We've changed the bar again with fifth generation fighters, F-22s and F-35s. Mm -hmm. I don't know how long that will be as far as an advantage, whether it be 30 years, I doubt it with technology, but it gives us the advantage again. And our adversaries, and let's talk the, one, the big ones, China and Russia, mm -hmm. are now trying to feel fifth generation capability, which one, validates what we've already done, but also shows you they're chasing us. And that's the way we like it. But right now, the, we have the advantage. Most recently, the uh, Air Force went to Red Flag, the, the, our big air combat exercise, most complex combat scenarios you can fly. F-22, F-35s own the skies. The F-35s specifically were, were highlighted in the fact that they had over a 20 to one kill ratio. Mike will tell you anything over a 10 to kill one kill ratio means nothing because you're gonna trick your Air Force. So we have the numbers to prove it. Personally, I have been up against uh, F-22s and an F-16 with the world's best fighter pilots out of fighter weapons school on my wing. And we never, ever got one of those on, in our sights. We were dead before we ever got to, uh, to the merge, so to speak, before we ever got to the visual arena. They, they have total situational awareness on where the red, red forces are and the blue forces are, and they can lay weapons on you before you know they're out there because you just can't find them. So that really changes the way we do business. It really does. You know, as we as taxpayers, we want asymmetric warfare. In the U.S. Navy, Army, Air Force, when we show up in battle space, there should be no doubt. We dominate, we destroy, we come home and drink a beer. And, and, and it's done. You know, we, we end campaigns quickly because the enemy, we attrit them or get them to surrender. That's what we do best. And that's and what we expect. Here's the other thing that, that I'm finding to be more relevant as I get older. Uh, we put men and women in harm's way for, for a reason, when our country asks us to go do what we want to do. But the missions that I flew in combat in the F-16 were, were mostly strike missions, going out and hitting high-value targets. Any target that's worth bombing, it's worth defending. So you knew you were going to fight your way in and you fight your way out. So you looked at the threat array, that, that, that what was protecting that high-value target, surface terror missiles, AAA guns. Uh, all those things that were protecting you go, how can I get to that target? So what we did in my day, uh, we would do force packages, strike packages. I've been out in the, in the air with 30, 40, 50, up to 60 aircraft to hit one target. Now most of those 50 or 60 aircraft are not bombers. They're jammers, they're decoys, they're air to air, but they're helped me to get past those threat array to get to the target. If I didn't do it that way, what I would do is spend days, if not weeks, killing the threats, those surface terror missiles, until I could get to that target. Every day I'd put men and women in harm's way to hit non-value targets. 
surface to air missiles. Or I would put 30, 40, 50 airmen in harm's way to hit that one strategic target. That same scenario that I flew 40 airplanes with, I've seen it done at Nellis, on the Nellis ranges with two to four of these aircraft, because the threats are no threat. They just don't see us, so we can pick our way into the threat, hit that target, and get our, pick our way out. That's the value. So you put a price tag on two, to, two airmen in harm's way or 40 airmen in harm's way. That's, that's where I'm coming to as a, as a senior citizen. I'm just going, I want my young soldiers and airmen to have that kind of survivability. When you, you mentioned that it's, it's, it's actually quite important that this is a joint platform that, it, that the Navy, Marines, and Air Force are all going to be flying it. Um, what about the, the first and only time that I've ever seen an F-35 in person was at an air show, and the first thing I noticed was all those flags uh, along, along the side. Uh, so how much, to what extent have other countries been involved with the development, or NATO allies, for instance, and is that different than the development process for for, for previous fighter jets? Yes, they were involved from the get-go. As I designed the cockpit, we had the partners in and we let them look and see and give inputs. We wanted their ideas. Oftentimes they employed differently than we do. We wanted to hear what they did, what had worked well for them. We tried to incorporate the best of the best into the F-35. So they've been very important to us. I was a Jet Joint Task Force commander uh, in, in combat. And I will tell you that not everybody brought the same capability to the fight. And so we were very careful about not using somebody in a, in a situation where they were not qualified. So a lot of times they would be in this area over here to the east where they, we knew they weren't going to get hurt. But the one carrying the heavy load, the ones that were going to go knock down the door, that was always U.S. Air Force. We had the capability. So again, as a senior officer, I've, I've looked at this and I've, think this is a good thing because coalition warfare is the way I want to go to. We all have the same capability. Maybe we'll carry the same load, but if not, we'll at least share the same information and, and be able to go in together uh, as we go into coalition warfare. The other one that nobody really cares about very much unless you're the company or the taxpayer is because they've been involved since the very beginning, they did bring money to the table. They put about $4.5 billion plus into the program, which means for the U.S. taxpayer, every aircraft I get now is about $10 million less because of their involvement. So that piece of it's there too. But the real piece of it is coalition warfare. We're not going to go to war by ourselves. We've talked a couple times about the cockpit. And I, I want to, for listeners who have never sat in a cockpit, um, practically speaking, how is, it, how is this different than, what are the features that are fundamentally new when you climb inside an F-35 cockpit that you never would have experienced before in, in, in a third or fourth generation fighter? John, it is markedly different. When we started this almost 20 years ago, in fact, 95, in Skunk Works out of Palmdale, I started this, and we cleaned the cockpit out. We took everything out, every button, lever, switch, display, stick and throttle, and started from scratch. We made everything earn its way back in based on combat value added and need but the biggest thing, the most dominant, is a 20 by 8 inch display. And you're so young, you can't remember 20 years ago. There weren't big screens at Best Buy. And there weren't cell phones. And the internet was brand, brand new. And so our kids and grandkids don't realize that it wasn't always like it is today. So that was a big jump. We went to touch screens and voice control. We took the head-up display out of the airplane. It's now on a helmet. You've probably seen a sci-fi looking carbon fiber helmet. 
and a visor. We project imagery on the visor. It's light enough that the pilot can wear it under 9 Gs and not get hurt. You can eject with it and not get hurt, including the women. So the cockpit, the first fighter cockpit built for men and women from a petite person, whether a man or a woman, to a big giant like Chad Henning, you know, Air Force Academy graduate that played mm -hmm. for the Dallas Cowboys, a big guy. We have to eject big and small the same safely. So there are many, many unique things in the cockpit, never been done before. Uh, quite a bit of risk, but it's all paid off. And we have seen that the enemy is now copying the cockpit. We see big displays in their fifth-gen look-alike cockpits as well. What does that mean on the, what, what, so what, what information, what's depicted on that? Let, on me, that let, let me give you an example, because again, I, I flew the F-4 and I flew the F-16, I flew the uh, uh, F-35 simulators. And, and as an old guy, I get in the simulator, it makes instant sense to me of what I'm looking at. I'm looking at a tactical picture. In my F-16, I would look at a radar picture. I would look at a targeting pod picture or a harm targeting system. I'd look at a raw gear. I would look at all these separate sensors and I would have to select which sensor I wanted to look at at which time and it's called sensor management and I, I could have a lot of confusion if I wasn't looking at the right thing at the right time or my wingman was looking at different things. We didn't have the same pictures we would have to try to take everything I'm seeing on all these systems put it up here in a tactical picture then share it with my wingman and hope he understands what I'm looking at. So I would more than once tell my wingman to take the group to the south because I'm looking at a north group and a south group. He goes, I've got the group to the south. We would come back into the debrief. We weren't even looking at the same groups. Uh, unbelievable. Now I sit in the F-35. I'm looking at a tactical picture. I don't have a radar picture anymore. I don't have any of these other systems. They're all integrated or fused into one tactical picture. Bad guys are identified. Good guys are identified. And here's what's really great about it is my wingman's looking at the same tactical picture I'm looking at. We're not adjusting anymore for failures or, or for looking at the wrong piece of sky. We're looking at the same tactical picture. And as I'm going this way, and I find it's time to turn around cold in the cap, the uh, next guy's coming in hot, I'm seeing the same picture. So even though when I turn my, my, my radar away from it, I'm getting the same tactical picture because it comes from multiple sources. I said as an old guy, it makes sense to me sitting in it. I've watched the young guys, even the cadets, get in, and within minutes, they're, 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 they figured it out. This is the most simple cockpit I've ever seen as a firefight with more information than I've ever had. So therefore, I'm having more information, but I don't have what I would call helmet fires, you know, where you got confused in the battle space. It's hard to get lost in the battle space now because I've got the information right in front of me. Marvelous job that Mike and his team did to put together a tactical display that you can use in combat uh, compared to the multiple sensors that I used to have to manage. So now here's what's happened. Engineers like Mike and those folks have made computers do what computers do best. And now as a fighter pilot, I can go back to being a tactician. I am now a fighter pilot instead of a sensor manager. That's the difference. Um, I kind of want to wrap up with um, a question that I hope won't, won't catch you off guard, but um, for each one of you, maybe if you could, if, if, if you know, we're looking back at the F-35 in 30 years, you know, we'll have plenty of, of data from its operational employment. What do you think is going to uh, be the feature that people say that was, that, that was most important? That's what contributed uh, most greatly to U.S. success in combat. I'm going to have to use two things. I mean, stealth is, is, is real. 
just so you understand, I was one of the cynics about stealth when I was a young uh, fighter pilot growing up watching uh, the F-117 in the beginning of stealth come out because we as a force were protecting those assets just like we were protecting everything else. So I was never, quote, a real believer. I'm here to tell you, John, I'm a believer. Stealth works. Uh, and it will work for the, for many years to come. I mean, people will chase that, and there'll be some solution set somewhere. But it, we we will have that luxury of going and coming to target areas at will. Uh, so stealth is one, but the avionics, and this is the one that I can't do not have a crystal ball where it's going to go. But where it's at today is almost Star Wars to me. We're looking through aircraft with helmets. I mean, I, I don't even see my kneecaps when I look down anymore. I'm looking through this jet and I'm seeing things that I've never seen before. Uh, so to me, I'm already at the point that I'm, I'm odd. So if you want to predict the next 30 years, I don't know where we're going to go, but it's only going to get more uh, lethal and more survivable for our airmen if guys like Mike have anything to say with it. Mike, where do you think we're going with it? You know, I think, John, we'll look back and we'll see this. 8 million lines of software and realize that a software-defined weapon system has tremendous growth potential. And we were talking about cadets jumping in and seeing things. And, and what happens oftentimes, even, even the West Point cadets here, they'll jump in and they're used to playing games, Nintendo and PlayStation. And after a few minutes they go, wait a minute, we do it like this on my game controller. Couldn't you do that? I go, you know, we can do that because it's software and we can change the software. If you think you'd be more lethal that way, and we realize that most F-35 pilots haven't been born yet. There are kids and our grandkids, and, and they will show up with a totally different idea than we had. And they will say, no, 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 here's a better way to employ with this airplane. Let's change the software. Now, the hardware is great. Let's go exploit some features in there we hadn't thought of before. So I think we'll look back and see that software-defined weapon systems are probably a breakthrough. Just because of the modularity that it that's allows right. for. Okay. It, it's the way that's we've right. always done things. When I was uh, flying F-16s, we were doing it like we've always done the F-4 because that's what we knew. We were comfortable with it. Mike never flew the F-4. He came into the F-16, first airplane he flew as a fighter was an F-16. And he was the kind of guy who would go, why are we doing it this way? So we don't know where we're going to go. As a company, Lockheed Martin has produced a very capable aircraft. But the airmen are getting it in their hands today. There's over 200 flying, uh, and they are changing the way we do tactics. Things that I would never have thought of. As a matter of fact, in my my mind, they would have been sacrilegious. They are viable tactics today because of the capability of this airplane. So I, I don't know where it's going to go, but I'll tell you, it will it will open up new doors for the way we do battles, and we need to do that because if we remain stagnant, we lose. Terrific. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. I think um, we'll probably have to, have to leave it there, but General Delaney, Dr. Scaff, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One quick thing before you go, if you like the podcast, please leave us a review or give us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us. All right. Thanks again.